back to Yacht Talk Hacking the Boards. I'm Yakov. And I'm Ben. And welcome to episode 25. This is our first soap note for GI. And it's actually going to be our only soap note. We're going to be covering high yield facts from episodes 18 through 24. We've got a lot to cover, Ben. So uh, let's get started. I agree. And I'm really glad to have you back, Yak. We missed you for the last episode. Thank you. It's good to be back, Ben. Okay, so starting with episode 18, Yaakov, what is the classic presentation of diffuse esophageal spasm? That would be intermittent retrosternal pain accompanied by dysphagia to solids and liquids. And how do we diagnose diffuse esophageal spasm? We would diagnose it with esophageal manometry, aka motility studies. And how do we treat diffuse esophageal spasm? Nitroglycerin or nifedipine. What is Zanker's diverticulum and how does it happen? Zanker's diverticulum occurs when motor dysfunction of the cricopharyngeal muscle leads to an outpouching in the upper esophagus. How does Zanker's typically present? Typically with halitosis, food regurgitation, and dysphagia in an older person, often with recurrent aspiration pneumonia. How do we diagnose and treat Zanker's? Contrast esophagography and myotomy when the diagnosis is confirmed. What is achalasia and how does it happen? Achalasia is dilation of the upper esophagus due to increased lower esophageal sphincter tone. How does achalasia present? Also with dysphagia, regurgitation, but also chest pain as well. How is it diagnosed and treated? Manometry is how we diagnose it, and treatment is with calcium channel blockers or surgery if severe. What usually, one, causes GERD, two, how does it present, and three, how is it treated? Well, that's a big question there. So, GERD is caused by decreased lower esophageal sphincter tone. It presents with abdominal and or chest pain, commonly referred to as heartburn, sometimes along with nocturnal cough, and you treat it with antacids such as H2 blockers or PPIs. Perfect. I knew you can handle it. Moving on to esophagitis, what is eosinophilic esophagitis and what other diseases is it associated with? So EOE, or eosinophilic esophagitis, is when eosinophilic invasion of the esophageal mucosa leads to inflammation and often stricture formation, usually in young males with atopic conditions like asthma or dermatitis. So that's typically what you want to look out for. And how can it present? In many ways, uh, but the classic one on, on tests that you'll see is with progressive difficulty swallowing food and even impaction of poorly chewed food. And how do you treat EOE? If they have an acute impaction, you get an endoscopy with biopsies, which would be diagnostic and therapeutic. Treatment otherwise consists of dietary modification and swallowable steroids. Moving on to infectious esophagitis, what are the three most tested causes of esophagitis in immunocompromised individuals? So if they're immunocompromised, we think about candida, CMV, and HSV esophagitis. What are the oral findings that help you distinguish between those three? So for candida, we'll see white plaques. For HSV, we'll see mouth sores and stomatitis. And for CMV, uh, it does not really have any oral findings. So that would be uh, what you would look out for. What are the buzzwordy endoscopic findings in eosinophilic herpes and CMV esophagitis? So for EOE, they'll usually use the word tracheolization. For herpes, they'll often use the word punched out ulcers. And for CMV, they'll often describe linear ulcerations. And finally, what is pill esophagitis? That's when swallowing large pills chronically, like potassium pills, leads to erosion of the esophageal mucosa. Moving on to esophageal cancer, what are the two main types and their risk factors? 
So one is squamous cell and two is adenocarcinoma. For squamous cell, we think about smoking and alcohol as the most common risk factors. And for adenocarcinoma, we think about GERD or Barrett's esophagus. What is pseudoachalasia? That's when the lower esophageal sphincter is obstructed by cancer, leading to achalasia-like dilation and symptoms of the upper esophagus. We're going to wrap this episode with some real dangerous pathologies. What are varices and how do we treat them chronically versus acutely? Well, another big question, Ben. So varices are dilated esophageal veins from portal hypertension. Chronic varices get non-selective beta blockers like propranolol as their treatment. Acutely bleeding varices get two large bar IVs, blood transfusion, IV antibiotics, and most tested, IV octreotide. Yet again, amazing job, Yaakov. Now for perforation. What is the most common cause of esophageal perforation? So unfortunately, the most common cause is iatrogenic, usually from endoscopies, but the most tested is Borhoff syndrome, which is perforation from repeated and forceful vomiting or any sort of increased pressure in the esophagus. Great. And regardless of cause, what are some classic physical exam findings in esophageal perforation? You'll see tachycardia, fever, mediastinal crepitus, decreased lung sounds, and even signs of sepsis. How do we diagnose and treat esophageal perforation? That would be with water-soluble contrast esophagography and urgent surgery. All right. Take us away for the next episode on the stomach. Perfect. So moving on to high yields from episode 19, talking about our gastropathies. So what is peptic ulcer disease and what are the two main causes? So PUD or peptic ulcer disease is the formation of ulcers in the stomach or duodenum, usually due to either NSAID use or H. pylori infection. What in a patient's history gives you a hint to the location of the ulcer? If the pain is better after eating and worse with fasting, then the location is more likely the duodenum and the cause is more likely H. pylori. If the pain is worse after eating, then the ulcer is more likely in the gastric antrum and due to NSAID use. Great info. How do we diagnose PUD? If warranted an endoscopy, H. pylori can be tested for using a urease breath test. And how do we treat? Generally, just PPIs will do the trick. Awesome. What are some other testable causes of PUD? Stress ulcers, such as in burn or traumatic brain injury patients, as well as much more rarely gastronoma. Nice. What is the feared complication of PUD and how will the patient present? Uh, perforation is that feared complication and the patient will appear toxic with fever, tachycardia, and possibly other hemodynamic changes along with peritonitis. Great. What's the first test to check for perforation? So first they would get an upright chest x-ray to look for free subdiaphragmatic air, and they go to emergency surgery if that finding is there. Wonderful. Moving on to different causes of gastritis, what is erosive gastritis? That would be erosion of the gastric lining due to substances like alcohol or cocaine, and you treat it generally with cessation of the substance that caused it. Nice. What cause of postprandial abdominal pain is common in diabetic patients? You're getting at gastroparesis, which you would treat with metoclopramide. Perfect. What is autoimmune atrophic gastritis and what are its classic manifestations? So AAG is antibody production against parietal cells and intrinsic factor leading to gastritis, B12 deficiency, and what's called pernicious anemia. Nice. And let's wrap up with gastric cancer. What are the main risk factors for gastric cancer? So one is a history of living in East Asia, as well as smoking history, although H. pylori infection and pernicious anemia also predispose patients to gastric cancer. 
How do we diagnose and stage gastric cancer? That would be with EGD and biopsies for diagnosis, and then a CT abdomen to check for metastases. Nice. We got that one done quick. Let's hope the next one on colon cancer is just as high yield and rapid. I agree, Jakob. So now we're going to get into episode 20. Can you tell me everything I need to know about colon cancer screening guidelines for the exam? Another big question, Ben. I'm going to try <laughs> to get this done. General population starts colon cancer screening at 45 every 10 years with colonoscopy or annually with fit testing. UC or ulcerative colitis patients start about 10 years after diagnosis and they'll get a colonoscopy every one to three years. And patients with a first degree relative with a history of colon cancer or high risk polyp start at 40 at the latest, but ideally 10 years before the uh, person was diagnosed and they'll receive screening every five or 10 years. Wow, Yakov, impressive as always. What are the main risk factors for colon cancer? Metabolic disorders such as obesity and diabetes, as well as smoking, alcohol, and very frequent consumption of red meat are all risk factors. Medical risk factors include a family history, ulcerative colitis, and hereditary disorders. What are protective factors against colon cancer? Interestingly, NSAIDs and high fiber diet. If there is bleeding from colon cancer, what is the most likely type of bleeding based on the location of the tumor? So left-sided tumors are more likely to present with hematochesia while right-sided tumors would more likely cause melanoma. And what's the classic lab finding in occult bleeding that prompts referral for colonoscopy in an older patient? That would be iron deficiency anemia. After diagnosis and resection of a colon tumor, how is the patient monitored? For a stage one disease, a colonoscopy one year after and every three to five years after that would be warranted. For higher stages than stage one, CT imaging is added. What is the most common location of colon cancer metastases? That would be the liver. And note that there are usually multiple lesions on the liver when it's metastasis, which differentiates it from primary liver cancer. Wow, that went even faster than the last one, Yak. I have a feeling this next one on other causes of lower GI bleed is going to be a bit longer. I couldn't agree more. So we're moving on to episode 21 on lower GI bleed. So Ben, what is diverticulosis and how does it develop? Diverticulosis are these colonic outpouchings, usually in the sigmoid colon, and they're due to increased intraluminal pressure, usually as a result of chronic constipation. Nice. What are some modifiable risk factors that guide treatment of asymptomatic diverticulosis? Low fiber, high meat diets. So treatment consists of counseling patients to start a high fiber diet. What complication of diverticulosis presents with hematochesia? A diverticular bleed, which is actually the most common cause of massive lower GI bleed in older individuals. Yikes. What is a complication of diverticulosis that presents with left lower quadrant pain, fever, and leukocytosis? That would be diverticulitis. And what's a symptom test writers like to trick us with in diverticulitis? Dysuria and a urinalysis positive for leukocyte esterase. Nice. They like to get at you with that. How do we diagnose and treat diverticulitis? We diagnose it with a CT abdomen and we treat with antibiotics like Cipro and metronidazole. What are two complications of diverticulitis which require immediate intervention? Abscesses or perforations. And how do we treat a large abscess? IV antibiotics and percutaneous drainage. How do we treat a diverticular perforation? Emergency surgery. Moving on to another cause of lower GI bleed, what is the classic finding in acute mesenteric ischemia? Pain out of proportion to exam. Nice. What are three embolic causes of mesenteric ischemia? Mural thrombus from left ventricular aneurysm, 
or from AFib. And then a septic embolus in infective endocarditis could also do it. Nice. What are two procedural causes of mesenteric ischemia due to hypoperfusion? An abdominal aortic aneurysm repair or a cabbage. Nice. What subtype of mesenteric ischemia is caused by hypoperfusion? Ischemic colitis, which is more likely to present with hematochesia. How do we diagnose mesenteric ischemia and what will it show? We diagnose with CT or mesenteric angiography, and it will show decreased perfusion as well as thickening and fat stranding of the affected segment. How does chronic mesenteric ischemia present? Intestinal angina is what they call it, as in abdominal pain after eating due to atherosclerotic disease. And one question on angiodysplasia, what is the main association with that cause of lower GI bleed? Aortic stenosis. Nice. Two questions on hemorrhoids. What is the difference between internal and external hemorrhoids first? Internal are not painful, external are painful. Nice. And last question of the lecture, when do hemorrhoids need surgery? If they're thrombosed or severe refractory cases. All right, onwards and downwards to diarrhea. <laughs> downwards. Okay, episode 22 on diarrhea, some high yield subjects. What are some lab abnormalities that you'd expect in almost all causes of diarrhea? You'd expect hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, and a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. What is the major difference between secretory and osmotic diarrhea? So secretory is when a factor like a hormone or some sort of irritant stimulates water and electrolyte excretion into the bowel, while in osmotic diarrhea, only water is drawn into the bowel from some sort of osmotically active solute. And what's that important hint in the question, Sam, that differentiates secretory from osmotic? Secretory diarrhea will occur during fasting, and they especially love to mention nocturnal diarrhea as a sign of secretory diarrhea. How will the stool osmotic gap differ in secretory and osmotic? Secretory diarrhea has a low osmotic gap because there are lots of electrolytes flowing in. Osmotic diarrhea has a high osmotic gap because only water is flowing into the lumen, diluting the electrolytes that are there. Keeping those questions in mind, what kind of di diarrhea does lactose intolerance cause? Since lactose is osmotically active, it will cause osmotic diarrhea. What are some risk factors or causes of developing lactose intolerance? Any sort of recent, recent gastroenteritis can do it. Also people of Asian, African, or Hispanic descent, as well as genetics. What is a diagnostic test that exam writers want us to know about for lactose intolerance? That would be the hydrogen breath test. Moving on to another malabsorption syndrome, what are some classic signs of celiac disease? So in celiac disease, we'll see symptoms like steatorrhea, joint pain, weight loss, fatigue, peripheral neuropathy, and anemia. That is a great list. What is celiac disease? So celiac disease is an autoimmune reaction to a protein in gluten, which results in villous atrophy of the small intestine, and that villous atrophy leads to poor absorption of nutrients. What are some notable vitamins and minerals that are poorly absorbed in celiac disease? We think about vitamins A, D, E, and K, but especially vitamin D. Uh, and then we also think about iron deficiency. What is the classic dermatological finding in celiac? That would be dermatitis herpetiformis, which are these severely pruritic erythematous papules, usually on the elbows and knees. How do we diagnose and treat celiac disease? So we diagnose it with IgA anti-tissue transglutaminase antibody, though colonoscopy with biopsies is gold standard, and treatment is just gluten-free diet. Now on to perhaps the highest yield e etiology, 
<laughs> yeah, I know. It never gets old. What is the main risk factor for developing C. diff infection? Mm -hmm. I knew you were going there. So the big risk factors you want to think about with C. diff are recent antibiotic use and or hospitalization. Acid reducers like PPIs also increase risk, as well as older age, a history of IBD, or a history of chemotherapy. And what is the classic triad concerning for C. diff? That would be frequent watery bowel movements, fever, and leukocytosis. How do we diagnose and treat C. diff? This one's really high yield. We diagnose with a stool toxin assay, and we treat with fluids and oral vancomycin or fidaxomycin. What is a feared complication of C. diff that presents with acute constipation, worsening fever and leukocytosis, and how do we diagnose it? So that's getting at toxic megacolon. We would diagnose that with abdominal Im imaging and treat conservatively. What is another complication that can happen on top of the toxic megacolon? So the toxic megacolon can lead to perforation, which would present with peritonitis and or sepsis and requires immediate surgery and IV metronidazole. Let's move on to some other infectious causes of diarrhea. What are the five main bugs which cause bloody, aka inflammatory diarrhea? We think about Campylobacter, EHEC or enterohemorrhagic E. coli, Shigella, Salmonella, and Yersinia. What are the two bugs that cause vomiting predominant diarrheal illness one to four hours after ingestion? So there, uh, we're thinking about bacteria with preformed enterotoxins, specifically Bacillus cereus and Staph aureus. Now to wrap up diarrhea, the miscellaneous disorders. Who is the classic patient with factitious diarrhea? Classically, they'll describe a female healthcare worker with 10 or more bowel movements per day. What tests can help us diagnose laxative abuse? A high stool osmotic gap, as well as melanosis coli on colonoscopy, support the diagnosis. What is refeeding syndrome and the main electrolyte abnormalities that it causes? So when a chronically malnourished patient, such as a patient with anorexia nervosa or a patient with malignancy, starts receiving nutrition again, insulin release and glycolysis result in rapid phosphorus depletion, followed by potassium and magnesium depletion. And how does dumping syndrome present differently? So dumping syndrome occurs due to pyloric insufficiency. So food can move rapidly from the stomach to the small intestine, and that causes fluid shifts, sympathetic activation, and large volume diarrhea after eating. With that, on to constipation. Wonderful. So moving on to episode 23 on constipation and obstruction. Ben, what is the classic sign of IBS? Pain that is either relieved or worsened by defecation. And how can IBS manifest? There's always abdominal pain, but there's either constipation, diarrhea, or actually a mixture of both. What are some other causes slash risk factors for chronic constipation? Anorexia nervosa, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, and low fiber diet, as well as medical conditions like diabetes, hypothyroidism, prior pelvic radiation, or neurologic disease. Can you name four complications that can arise from chronic constipation? Yes, I think I can. Fecal impaction, diverticulosis, hemorrhoids, and anal fissures. And how do we manage external hemorrhoids and anal fissures? Usually conservatively with high fiber diet, topical lidocaine, nifedipine, or nitroglycerin, and sitz baths. Only severe cases need surgery. All right, now for some acute causes of constipation. What are the three most common causes of small bowel obstruction? Adhesions, adhesions, and adhesions from a history of abdominal surgery. Much less commonly, hernias, malignancies, and IBD can also cause SBO. How does SBO present? 
acute constipation, obstipation, and usually bilious vomiting. And how do we diagnose and treat SBO? Abdominal x-ray will show dilated loops of small bowel with collapsed large bowel and a transition point. You treat it conservatively with a nasogastric suctioning, bowel rest, and IV fluids. What are the two major complications of SBO and how do they manifest? Perforation or ischemia, both of which would likely cause peritonitis and hemodynamic instability, along with leukocytosis and lactic acidosis on labs. How do bowel sounds differ between uncomplicated versus complicated SBO? They're usually hyperactive in normal SBO, whereas they're hypoactive in complicated. Nice. How do we manage complicated SBO? Urgent surgery. Now, before we move on to ileus, what is Ogilvy syndrome? That would be another name for colonic pseudo-obstruction, which presents similarly to SBO, except usually in an elderly person and is due to decreased cholinergic tone rather than adhesions. It's managed very similarly to uncomplicated SBO, as in conservatively. Great. So what is ileus and how does it occur? Ileus is paralytic lack of motility in the intestines, almost always as a result of very recent abdominal surgery, leading to increased sympathetic tone and increased opioid receptor activation. And how does ileus differ from a small bowel obstruction? The surgery will have been in the past few hours or days, not months to years like SBO. Bowel sounds will be hypoactive and abdominal imaging will show diffuse dilation, including of the colon and even sometimes the stomach. Gotcha. Does management differ between the two? Slightly. Conservative management with NPO, anti-emetics, and serial abdominal exams, along with opioid weaning or full cessation. Finally, for this episode, what is volvulus and what are the two main types? Volvulus is when the colon gets wrapped around the mesentery, causing obstruction, usually in the sigmoid colon, but sometimes in the cecum. How do the two causes differ? Sigmoid occurs in older patients and is treated with a flexible sigmoidoscopy. Cecal usually occurs on and off, but in the acute setting, surgery is required. Both would show an upside-down U or coffee bean-shaped colon on imaging. Great. So that wraps up constipation. On to our last episode of this high-yield review, IBD. All right. On to episode 24 on inflammatory bowel disease. What are some signs, symptoms, and labs which point toward IBD as a cause of abdominal distress? So with inflammatory bowel disease, we think about bloody diarrhea, weight loss, young age, systemic signs like fatigue or fever are very common. Um, but labs will also often show leukocytosis and elevated ESR or CRP and possibly iron deficiency anemia. We should note that UC incidence is bimodal and is often diagnosed in older men ages 50 to 70. How do we differentiate between Crohn's and ulcerative colitis? Essentially, it comes down to colonoscopy with biopsy, which is the only way to truly diagnose either of them. And what are the main path pathological findings in Crohn's? There you'll see transmural inflammation, skip lesions, possibly uh, from mouth to anus, cobblestoning, and non-caseating granulomas. And what are the main pathological findings in ulcerative colitis? With UC, you get mucosal and submucosal inflammation, continuous from rectum up the colon, with possible pseudopolyp development. How does cigarette smoking affect the progression of each disease? So smoking worsens Crohn's disease, but interestingly, cessation of smoking has actually shown to worsen UC in smokers. 
That is very interesting, Yaakov. What are the two main intestinal complications that are more strongly associated with UC than Crohn's? That would be toxic megacolon and colon cancer. How is toxic megacolon diagnosed and treated if the cause is ulcerative colitis? So it's diagnosed with abdominal CT, treated with IV steroids, unless there is peritonitis, which warrants surgery. And what are some GI tract manifestations of Crohn's disease? So there we look out for mouth ulcers, anal fissures, and strictures. And those strictures can actually cause small bowel obstruction and fistulae, such as in an anorectal fistula. And what are the four major extra intestinal systems test writers love to test for IBD complications? They love testing on biliary, derm, opto, and MSK extra intestinal manifestations. What is the main biliary manifestation of IBD? So especially UC has an extremely strong association with PSC. What about the derm manifestation? So that would be erythema nodosum, which are papules or vesicles which classically erupt on the shins and are more strongly associated with Crohn's. What's that fancy word for the group of MSK disorders that IBD is associated with? That would be the seronegative spondyloarthropathies. Try saying that five times. <laughs> and that includes psoriatic and reactive arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. With all of those fancy words, we have finished our GI tract soap note. Join us next time for our first hepatobiliary episode. 